I only learned that I could call myself Jose when Mourinho went to to, to the UK. <laughs> I was like, hang on a minute. Hey, hey, so you can all actually say my name. A revelation in your a life. A revelation. Welcome to Cloud Realities, live from Google Next 2023. We're a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And we're still in San Fran, Rob. We are still here. Now, on Sunday when we first arrived, we uh -oh. went for a bit of a walk, uh, like just Rob's, Rob's first time in San Francisco. So we did a big walk along, you know, like Pier 39 and then out to the Golden Gate Bridge. And Rob was particularly excited about seeing Alcatraz. I was. I was yeah. So we walked down Pier 39 and we're saying to him, you know, we get to the end, there's like a viewing platform, we get a bit of a look at it. We, just, I mean, we decided at that point that we weren't going to actually do a trip of it over or anything like that. We didn't have enough time. So we get to the end and, you know, for those of you who haven't been, you get a big view of the bay over to the left-hand side, you've got the Golden, the Golden Gate Bridge. Over to the right-hand side, you've got this other, I actually don't know the name of it, but another very long bridge that runs out towards uh, Silicon Valley. And then right in the middle is, a, is the island of uh, Alcatraz, and you can see the prison on the top. So we walk up to the viewing platform, and uh, Rob is walked up next to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked over to him expectantly, thinking, you know, he's going to go, God, look at that Alcatraz. And he goes, where's Alcatraz? He's <laughs> 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 like... Literally there, like disguised. It, literally disguised. there. Now, to be fair, I just for some reason I thought it was behind Alcatraz. Alcatraz <laughs> <laughs> was behind Alcatraz. I put it down to jet lag and the shenanigans of my trip out here. But just, no, that's probably what it was. Is that your excuse? It, it wasn't my finest hour. No, shall we say it, it was? It was deeply funny. But anyway, uh, look, joining us on today's conversation is. Jose Gomes from Google Cloud. He is the Managing Director of Retail and Consumer, and we are delighted that you've managed to join us today, Jose. Thank you for having me, boys. It feels like uh, the intro to a mindless episode, if you guys watch uh, uh, that podcast. Go on, what is it? It's um, a podcast with Jason Bateman. Oh, uh, I have seen yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. seen it. And Will Arnett. And Will Arnett, yeah, and the yeah. guy from Will and Grace. That's right, that's um, right. Who I have no idea what his name is. But they always have this uh, witty banter before um, the guest comes on. And no. it's hilarious. It's the best part of the show, actually. I, it, 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 I, I do like those guys. They are funny, aren't they? They are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your role? Um, so, as you said, my name is Jose, and we were having a conversation about this. I'm Portuguese, which is why it's got a... A hard J. Yeah. I like to joke that we know how to pronounce the letter J, <laughs> unlike the Spanish. Um, I run our retail and CPG business which uh, here in the US, which basically means looking after the largest 60 or so um, retail and, and, and CPG customers. Right. Been here for about three years. Um, prior to that was um, at a company called Dunhumby, really working at sort of the intersection of retail um, and data and AI, mm. which is very applicable to, to the world that we live in right now. And you're in the US? So did, did I am. Because you, you, went, you went to uni in Manchester, I think you were I did, for a bit. I yeah. actually grew up all over. My parents were diplomats, so yeah. I was um, my, moved here when I was three from Portugal. Right. right. Lived here for a bit, then I lived in Australia, then I lived in Zimbabwe. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, quite some... Uh, it is. All very Anglo-Saxonic, so I'm big on my rugby and, uh, and cricket. Right. Australia supporter, unfortunately, for, oh, for you boys. Oh, no. There you go. Um, Stop recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then on to Dunhumby, um, worked in the UK... Latin America, 
living in Brazil, and then moved from Sao Paulo to Chicago. Right. There's, got, there's got to be a book in that. There's got to be some stories as you travel around Lots the world, of stories. Yeah. There will never be a book. <laughs> I'm far too lazy. Maybe now with generative AI, I could speak to it and it could <laughs> extract exactly. it. Like five or six bullet points and like do 200 <laughs> pages on that. <laughs> Life story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Makeup. Funny anecdotes. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. made me feel interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great prompt. Yeah, Sticking yeah. the parameters. That is a great prompt. Make me feel. Make me sound interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'd buy that. Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> uh, right. So, uh, retail and and uh, and consumer products in particular is is an industry that over the last twenty years has gone through so many cycles of disruption uh, generally, and then of course, most recently with the pandemic kind of very much accelerating, um, you know, kind of uh, the, the, the move online and the move to digital retail. Um, give us a bit of a pen picture from your desk at the moment on, on what do you think that journey's been like and what's the current state of retail? And that's before we, we bring all the artificial intelligence into the picture. Um, wow, what a big, uh, a, a, a big question. Look, I think what's been really interesting is you've got all the technology that's been thrown into um, into the mix in terms of what retailers can do and leverage. Right. But you've also got the exact same on the consumer side, right? So just think about you know the onset of online, the onset of of, of mobile. So that all that it's created is a, the world's greatest amount of confusion. Right. Right. And you think right. about the explosion of just choices. So I think of choice on the consumer side, choice on the customer side or the shopper, and then choice on the IT teams or the, you know, the internal teams that have to work out what technology to deploy. Mm. You've got all of that. You've got a backdrop of the most insane social economic change, right? We went from the Great Depression to a boom, to a pandemic, right. which was a bust, right. to then a boom, to then another bust. Now we don't know exactly know what we're going on. Is it, is it a recession? Is it not a recession? So I think what happened is just the amount of change, amount of choice, and then the drivers that influence that choice one way or the other have just been compressed. And so I think the thing that we see folks struggling with the most is how do you absorb all of this? How do you choose what to bet on? And, you know, retail is a thin margin business. So how do I actually deploy the capital that I do have and how do I live with, you know, mainframe, which is still prevalent in pretty much every retailer's business. Right. I was with a customer right. the other day and there was a brilliant anecdote that they'd found some code that someone had written and it said, short-term fix, rewrite code <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> it's been there for how 1997. Long? 1997, <laughs> which actually meant that his work was, and I assume it was a he, was spectacular because his short-term fix is still there. Yeah. But it's very indicative of where retail is. People struggle to move on from um, that past. There's so much legacy. At the same time, retail has always had a bit of a stigma of being less sophisticated. And I have the privilege of working with what I believe are some of the most sophisticated engineering companies in the world. Hmm. You know, I'd put Walmart, Target, the Home Depot, Lowe's um, up there with any of the FANG um, companies. But they have this dichotomy of living with the past and the present right, right. all at once. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the interesting piece, right? Is you, you've got all of this change, you've got all of this optionality, all of this choice. And that's what people have you know, been struggling to, or some thriving um, through, through leveraging. And, and those, the example of big bricks and mortar companies that you're working with, um, 
like what kind of shift did they see during the pandemic? Have people basically come back now, or or are they saying a more a more permanent shift to people like wanting to do, I don't know, home delivery, desk, you know, roadside pickup, all of those sorts of things? So I think if you look at the sales, it's pretty well established now that things have kind of where they would have been if it had been linear. Right. We just kind of had that right. big bubble, yeah. and now they've sort of okay. settled back down. Um, a little. What has changed, though, is I think adoption is more prevalent. You know, the number of people that are using multiple channels, and there's a bunch of data out there, has skyrocketed, right? Um, I think the role of stores is more important than ever before. And I've always been a bit of a Luddite. You know, when the whole bandwagon was going on about, you know, the demise of stores and the apocalypse and all the rest of it, now, I always saw through it, which is in the history of retail, bad, store, bad retailers have gone out of business in bad times and good retailers have been resilient. Hmm. That hasn't changed. And the direct-to-consumer retailers have really struggled because cost of acquisition, when you hit a certain point, goes yeah. through the roof. Right. Um, so I, I, I think behaviors have changed, but there hasn't been sort of this huge shift just to pure online. Right. But I do think that the blurry middle where people are shopping online, picking up in-store, or you know, doing a, a, a shopping journey throughout it um, has, has shifted. Um, and look, I had my upbringing in retail, um, working at Dunhumby with Tesco. So, you know, dot-com at Tesco was born in 1998-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the time I left the UK and went to Brazil, we're talking about 2011, Tesco was already at about 15% of their sales, mm. or 10%, I mm. can't remember which, uh, which, uh, which of the two those uh, was, was already online. So it was already a very online-driven business. And in the UK, I remember the two, the two markets globally that had most of this already ingrained was the UK and Korea. I don't know if you all remember in... I think it was about 2011 where the, the Tesco launched the, the the app that people could take photos in the in the subway mm. and get it delivered at home right, on their right, way home. Right. So that was over 10 years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Right, and so, so this adoption um, has been around for a while, but I think the pandemic just accelerated the number of people that tried it. But I think the the point you make there, that Tesco one in particular, is about like very specific experience, isn't it? So the, it seemed to me like during the pandemic that kind of you know there was an existential threat element from one from one side yep through the pandemic and not being able to open stores and supply chain complication and all of those sorts of things but then on the on the consumption side of it there was a need for different experience and that was sometimes uh you know driven by the fact they can't go to a store yeah um, but the, you know they might want to pick up roadside or something like that but but actually i think there's another experiential element that weaves through all of this which is just the nature of like wanting an experience when you're actually yeah. trying to buy something, you know? There is, but look, I, I think that people um, over mystify a lot of this stuff. You know, the major shift that happened was people um, cooking more at home because they didn't go out to eat yeah, right. during um, lunchtime, right? That, that's still one of the biggest shifts that's insulating the grocery industry is that, you know, the return to work is only at about 70%, mm. right? If you look mm. at the, the, the number of uh, scans of, of, of badges. That means that there's a lot more meals being cooked at home. Now, yeah, part of that is experiential in that if you're going to cook at home, you want that to be a better experience right. than it was before. Right. But it's a lot less sexy than the, you know, the overarching driver around well, what am I getting in, in the store. The other thing that's happening now, which is also really interesting, but very human nature, is you're looking at the retailers that are winning, and most of those retailers are cost-conscious retailers, mm -hmm. right? It's the time when those take market share, and they're 
typically we consider them to be the you know antithesis of, of the experience, right? right? The experience there. Right. The other thing that's interesting is now because it's been democratized through e-commerce, you can go and shop at a brand that perhaps you don't love the store experience, but right. you love the prices. Yeah, right. And get it delivered at home. Right. And then and then it is literally the same product. You've just had it delivered for like twenty percent cheaper. And or you can go and pick up, you know, buy online and pick up, which was interesting because. You know, during this boom, I saw the difference. You know, Europe was a little bit more of an early adopter in this. Whilst in the UK, delivery was massive. Mm. You know, it's a perfect little island, huge population density, whatnot. In France, click and collect was huge, right? They were really the pioneers of, of, of click and collect. Right. And the main reason was because people refused to pay for delivery. Ah. <laughs> refused. Whereas in the UK, it was always a point of pride at Tesco to make people pay for delivery mm. because they thought that it would make people uh, you know, value it more. Yeah, but they yeah. were very clever about Sounds pricing. So yeah. if you got it in the middle of the day, I think you pay like a 50 pence mm. or, 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 or a pound. So this dichotomy as well of how people have adopted. And the US has gravitated much more towards buy online, pick up in store because the population density is much lower than in um, other countries. And people are you know, more car driven in terms of their, their lifestyles. I think you know, the numbers on uh, drive through for QSR are ridiculous, mm. right, mm. compared to the rest of the world, which is why they were insulated to some degree during the pandemic. Right. Um, but even the shifts in, 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 in the hospitality industry have been really interesting. So we get to a, a point then in the, uh, in the industry where you've got all of this movement going around. You've got some you know, predictable shift. You've got some counterintuitive shift going on in there. Let's come back to the conference. And, yeah. and so how are Googling positioning, positioning this week? Like what are, what are the big stories around retail? And like what, what's the technical support that you're sort of leaning into? I mean, look, I think the, 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 the big news is that all of the products that we've been developing around generative AI and AI in, in general um, have gone GA, right? So generally available. I think that's the big one is we've gone from a place of very broad um, experimentation through the private previews and, and, and whatnot into a place now where, you know, we're open for business. It's prime time and these products are now part of the core um, uh, platform. The other piece that I think we've been really focused on is not just bringing out you know, bits and bobs of, of unique solutions, but yeah. actually being able to give folks an like, enterprise platform. Like end-to-end. -end. Yeah, but I, I think it's just this realization that to build an experience around generative AI requires a bunch of things that have nothing to do with generative AI. Right. Yeah. And in particular, to take something to scale within an enterprise, you really need it to be end-to-end. Um, -end. Hmm. So Vertex is a, a, you know, one of the few plugs that I'll, I'll, I'll make on the show. The whole point of it has been, how do you ensure that a company has from start to finish, the ability to take something into production. Mm. And we've gone a, a step further in that, which is the data layer. And you know what the teams here talk a lot about is how do we make it so that you're bringing AI, whether it's generative or garden variety, to your data, as opposed to having to move your data around and putting it in third, you know, put it in one product and do something there and then right. move it to another product and right. do something there. And like just stitching all of this together so that it's seamless. It's, it's that thing about retailers already have a lot on their plate, no pun intended. Uh, the mastery of using the tech. A good make it he, he'll be here all week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, where's that button? You have to. They've already got, you know, they're struggling to cope. There's a lot of things going on. Is society going to work in the new way or shop in the new way? Um, making the technology easy to consume, connecting things makes a big difference. It's yeah? not just retail. I mean, look, everyone's now got their board going. When is the Gen AI revolution right. going to hit our enterprise? Right. Yeah. And so if you, you know, and, and there's been an over-index, I would argue, in all industries around use case. I've got use case fatigue, just the concept of the use case. Yeah. 
Um, oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm crossing out yeah, my cool, next just, question. We'll there you go. Yeah, 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 well, it's like, it's like generative AI bingo, right? Yeah, yeah, right. My use case, I had that one down. So um, the reason why I've got fatigue about it is a use case is a good... Um, well, everything starts and ends with a use case, but use cases is the, the end-all and be-all miss a point, which is to really drive competitive advantage in AI, you have to adopt it. Right. And it's the least sexy answer when people ask me it. But the reason why adoption is really important is that these models learn from doing. They get better the more you leverage them. So if you get everyone using a model, it will inherently become better. And so the more you drive adoption throughout the organization, the better you will become. And are other people, you're t other organizations you're talking to, are they getting their head around that generalistic use? Because there was a period with data, for example, where it's like, build a data lake and brilliant things will happen. Yeah. And then you had a well, five years of a lot of money spent so on data here's lakes. A, here's a good one from my, uh, from my past. So I didn't realize this when I was actually working there. Clive Humby, the founder of Dunhumby, was the guy that coined the phrase, data is the new oil. Hmm. Oh, and when okay. Clive said it, I didn't know this. I knew that he said this about that expression. I didn't know that he actually coined the expression. When he said it, he meant that like oil, it needs to be refined to be valuable. Um, Although I guess you could argue that a barrel of oil is still pretty valuable. Hmm. Um, and most oh, people it needs to be refined to create product. Yeah, to create yeah, value yeah, out of yeah, it, you yeah. need to refine it. You need to transform it. In of itself, it's not value. And the juxtaposition he used to make was, you know, most organizations treat it like sand, yeah. which is it's valuable if you have a lot of it. But that's not inherently the, the, the right way to do it. No. And so you've got to make it easily and accessible. But taking a platform approach to it means that once you've solved how to use voice, let's take it as one of the use cases in generative AI. Well, brilliant. I know how to use it in my call center. But now I want to make sure that I can use it with my customers in my e-commerce um, application, or I want to make it accessible by my associates in store as they're radioing in questions, or from my finance team. You want to solve it for all of those use cases at once through a platform, as opposed to singularly solving it for one use case. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and so I think that's what the more enlightened organizations are looking and are well set up to do this. So some of the top retailers, if you look at how they're actually set up, they'll have a head of you know, the CIO or whatnot, they'll have someone that's the head of platform and someone that's the head of product. And that organization works really well because the platform team's worried about making sure that the capabilities are there for everyone to consume. Right. Yeah. The right. product team are then worried about the features and functions that a specific user needs yeah. and will solve for that and their sustainability in that model. And so where I've seen the evolution of conversations has gone is like, great, we've got some use cases, but now how do we actually solve for the platform mm. and how do we infuse AI across everything that we do as opposed to going we've got five use cases and we've marketed them and you know I've had quite a few it was interesting I went to Cannes this year for the first time which is a great I think um, barometer of where our society is Cannes has now turned into uh, a technological show right it used to be very much all the creative right. and it still is that's where the awards are right but you walk down all everyone's um so you mean know, a can, the can film festival can, well the ad festival the ad festival right so the ad festival you walk down people you go in their boats and you go in their beaches and mm. everyone's talking about um gen ai and ai right. and the transformation of marketing so even the last holdout of creatives is now of creativity has been taken over by the technology and i was speaking to a lot of the cmos there and some of them had very prominent campaigns that had gone live Right. And they were embarrassed about it. They were like, Jose, now people think that my entire marketing department is driven by AI and generative AI. Right, right. And like, nothing could be further from the truth. We've done one campaign and now everyone expects that to be the, the new normal. Right. I think that's a good example where if you over-index on the use case, once you've done that one, it doesn't mean that your next 15 use cases are going to yeah, come gonna faster. Yeah, going to roll out the door. Exactly. And, and, and what kind of conversations are you having around business casing that? Because uh, 
organizations sometimes struggle to get their heads around general use platform from a and, and that's why use case became prevalent i think because you could hang it on something that's so the, that's a really interesting question which is a lot of this underlying capability that require that is required for you to scale is inherently difficult to attach a value to because it's part of the process mm -hmm. right it's, it's intangible the, it's the, almost isn't it yeah, yeah it's the stepping stone to get there so it's a sunk cost Right, and so if you go to someone and say, I need $10 million to go and build a platform, they're, well, what am I gonna get out of it? A platform. Well, there's no value in that. Yeah, but you'll get 100 use cases at the end of it as opposed to, you know, for whatever, an incremental $10,000 as opposed to having to spend a million bucks on every use case. And, and that's a massive common enterprise mistake where they wire in one use case and they haven't got the harmonization or the acceleration of the platform. And then they don't realize that the next one costs the same and they, they miss the point about the platform acceleration and bringing everything together. But it does take a leap of well, faith almost in the business case. And remember now, we've also got a different dichotomy, which is the responsibility that you need to approach AI with is very different than the other technologies that you were using before. Yeah. If you bake that into your platform, you can have the security, you can have the ethics, you can have the responsibility considerations right. baked into it and have one throat to choke with the team yeah. that's responsible for that. In foundation control, out of the box. Out of the box. No mistakes. Yeah. you're thinking about that. And so, you know, the more sophisticated folks, that, that has been even from the outset, right? Um, and I won't say uh, who it was because I haven't asked his permission, but one of the leading CIOs of those companies that I mentioned, mm. I took a lot of inspiration from my, my own thought process because that was what he told me. I said, look, I want to I stop and I want to solve for voice across the enterprise holistically. Right. Now, then I want to pick use cases that validate that the platform works. Yeah. So one of the first pieces of guidance I give folks is, as you're going on this journey is start with the P&L. And I don't mean it figuratively. I mean it literally. Mm. Look at your P&L and find out all the places where there's leakage or there's value to be found and then work out the technology and, that can help. And target that absolutely directly with like no layers in between. Because one of the things that's happening is that a lot of the use cases that are easier are the ones that are getting all the oxygen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you're gonna have a lot less value out of it if um, you don't compare the optionality, right? The, 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 the other use cases. So you have some organizations that are jumping towards like content generation and they don't have any forecasting. Mm. Now, forecasting is boring. That's old AI. Who cares about that? It's very important, though. But if you have no forecasting Forecast. in your company, why, why are you spending any time on generating content mm -hmm. in your business? I'll give yeah, you the best use case for me in, in generative AI, which is very unintuitive. But it's the one that's made the CEOs I've spoken to and the board presentations I've been the most exciting. So within Google X, we've just had a company that's graduated called Mineral. And what I love about all the Google X projects is that they start with a very large social problem that they're trying to solve, and then they'll work out the monetization on the back of it. So mm. Mineral's very, very powerful because it's trying to solve for our food productivity for a growing population, right? right. The intent of it is that a, Sub Africa, a, a, a farmer in Sub-Saharan Africa should be able to take a photo of a crop or a plant and have AI tell him what he should do, right? Um, and the idea is that you can democratize this and you can make everyone's productivity better. What they've done in one of the offshoots is that as a result of that, they have been able to create models. One of their models is a berry model, and they can tell you with 98% accuracy how long a berry is going to last for. Really? Which means that if you're at the grower, you can determine whether the berry should go to your distribution center or whether it should go to your transformation center. Yeah, much better use of your raw material, isn't it? Right. Optimization in so your, in shrink. your product. Yeah. So the shrink, you know, and then if it's at the store and you get to take a photo there, and, you know, do you put it on sale, do you not? So when we presented this to the, the, to the CEO of some of these, the CEOs of some of these large uh, grocers, they're like, holy crap, so Gen AI can solve for shrink. That's a multi-billion dollar opportunity for me. 
like the marketing stuff's cute and all right. I love that. But this is really impacting the P&L. It's very powerful optimization it's in something that's very important. Very important with huge sociological benefit or societal benefit. So that's what's really interesting to me. Is you start with that P&L, you get a platform and a product team in place, mm. you get the ethics, you pick your five or six use cases that will validate the platform and that impact the P&L. And then the other last piece, which is, I think is really important, is you have to take a citizen development view of the world, mm. which is you don't know where these use cases are going to crop up. And a lot of the skills that are being developed right now, you can't recruit out of university. And so you've got to develop them in-house. You right. have to develop prompt engineers. Right. You know, someone, uh, the number of debates we've had about that, prompt engineering, what is it? How do we seed it? How do we train it? How do we embed it? So you're, so you're hiring at that point for capability and future potential rather than they've got a track record of doing something because it might not have existed. Well, and most importantly, you need to create the environment where people can actually play around with it. And, and that goes back to the platform. If you don't have a platform that is safe and secure and that you can manage and then control, how do you turn it loose on the entire population? It's, it's that curiosity and diversity. You need the diverse audience to be curious, give them access to the technology and great things will come, isn't it? Well, yeah. and in this case in particular, because I think a lot of the value is going to come from the back office and the shared services, which aren't the most creative folks normally in a company. The marketers are the ones that all gravitate towards the technology and come up with a billion use cases, right? But there are huge opportunities within leakage of retail. You know, I'll, I'll give you a, a simple one. The trade fund process with CPG companies where, you know, they'll pay for a promotion. Typically speaking, there's a lot of leakage in that and that what the CPG company owes the retailer isn't well accounted for. And so they'll pay accountants, the accountants will come in and they'll drove through it and then they'll work out, hey, the CPG companies actually owe you this much and they'll take a percentage of that. Well, with Gen AI, you can digitize all of those, that paperwork and you can find it for yourself just by summarization and asking the data questions, which is a brand new world. Now, that is the least sexy use case of generative AI that probably anyone will talk to you about it, right. but it may be worth as much as 100 basis points of profitability within a retail environment. So, look, maybe in a way to just bring our conversation today to a bit of a close, um, looking forward to the next 12 months then, what do you see happening? Do you see the, the preponderance of platform building and the acceptance that platform, you know, maybe more so than, say, business lighthouse type business casing, is going, to, is going to be something that you guys are going to push a bit harder more publicly? Look, I think we've been pushing on this idea that we want to have the world's best ecosystem, the most open ecosystem, and the most complete ecosystem. Um, and there are a number of different technologies. You know, we've been talking a lot about how, you know, you need to blend different elements into a generative AI experience. You know, search and grounding, which is terms that you heard Thomas talk a lot about today, they're massively important. And it really leverages all of the strengths that Google has had for all of these years. What it allows you to do is that, you know, the grounding is you go for factual data that exists within your company so that you're not generating the answer to that question. You're going and picking it up and retrieving it. Right. So we're blending search, we're blending generative AI into that. That's where the platform and the ecosystem comes into, into play. So yes, it's a core part of what we're trying to do, giving people optionality. So whether it's open source models, whether it's Google models, um, but most importantly, what we want to get to is a place where AI is prevalent across the organization, mm. and it's adopted at scale. Yeah. So, you know, well, what's my focus? What my, what's my team's focus over the next 12 months? We want to drive adoption of AI at scale throughout these organizations, because if that adoption comes, we know that we'll be able to, you know, make impacts on the balance sheet um, and the P&L of these retailers in ways that really have been unimaginable um, for the past sort of uh, recent history. That's great, man. So thank you very much for those insights. And let's let's stay on um, Google's position and actually talk a little bit about the keynote this morning. So 
Rob, I know you've been roving about and trying to farm farm information. So, what are the big what were the big themes coming out of the was, keynote? This uh, as you'd imagine, uh, a doubling down on AI, yeah. and started out with an excellent use case about mailbox migration. I think five hundred million going over to improve search and experience associated with the technology. To uh, so the, the the user got a better um, service out of their mailbox. It's quite powerful. And there was an interesting stat actually that came out that 70% of AI unicorns are actually hosting or using GCP. So obviously a very popular platform to drive sort of early AI innovation. Are you aware of that? Yeah. 70% of AI is crazy. It is. I mean, look, it's a testament that if you want to build, and you think about those companies, those, those Gen AI native unicorns, they're building platforms. Yeah. Right? It's the validation of everything they said. They are right. fundamentally looking for their own platform. Um, and building on us. So it's a great validation of the strategy that we're, we're executing. And what do you think drove that? Do you think it's the accessibility of the tool set, the usability of the tool? What, what is it? So when you're building platforms, what really matters is the breadth and then the scale. Mm. And we scale, right? I mean, think about you know, the beautiful thing about Google is we were privileged to bring most of our technology to market after leveraging it internally ourselves. Right. And when we use it internally ourselves, that's a lot of scale that you have to serve and um, and be able to to to, you know, to run efficiently and effectively. And, and that's an excellent segue into the next two technical points that came out around increasing the performance of model training and model execution. So twice as fast at half the cost, which is great. So a more sustainable approach to it, and also partnership with Nvidia and their tech platforms going deep within the Google data centers to provide you with the, the, the power and the compute to be able to do this quickly and very effectively. And that partnership with NVIDIA is massive. It's yeah. so important to, 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 to the work that we do and to the innovation and to the use cases and, and developing those out and having that foundationally built into the platform. Well, it's your, it's, it was the example you gave earlier when you were talking about the retail platforms, which is sustainability built in. Yeah. So, so presumably over time, those things, you know, the, the the sort of progress that Nvidia is making, that's just going to be that's just going to be there by default for organisations that are building on your platform. And you want to give them the accessibility to have access to all of these different chipsets, so that the right workloads being deployed. We do a lot of work right now in edge as well in retail. Mm. So, which is how do you? An example I give executives is when you ship software to your your customer's mobile phone. You don't think about the hardware device that they have. I mean, maybe you do if you're in an emerging market and you may have some people that, that don't. But even, even that is being solved to a large degree. When you ship software to your stores, it's a nightmare. You're thinking about what hardware is there, what version of it is, when was it from, that code from 1997. We want to solve that by bringing Google Cloud to the edge. And that has been really, really exciting for retailers. And so within that, there's also this confidence. Of how do we bring Google Cloud, including all of our AI, or a subset of that AI that can actually run at the edge there. Right. And so um, that's a really exciting space for us. And it's, a good, it's a good use case for when I explain platform to people, I use the mobile phone as an example of, it's you don't brilliant. need to know what the, the platform gives me services, you can drop your app on without talking to anybody and monetize the next day. It's a, it's a perfect example of a scale platform. No one's thinking about the hardware. Yep. It's completely abstracted away. Um, and it's a great example of what we want to get to with the store is that you can ship software to your stores in a way that you do to a mobile phone. Right, yeah. And you can update it and it's self-healing and all that goodness. Um, but it's a great example of, of, of adoption and scale. The platform enables you to do it. Um, the last two, uh, there was a big part about integration and being able to connect things together and make the tech 
easy because you don't want to worry about the plumbing. You just want to get the, the flows right. You want to get the right. output right quickly. Right. So there was, a, there was a good bit of that. Uh, another, another point around platform messaging there, I would suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's coming. And the <laughs> final point was Duet AI, which was the mech suit for the developer, which was incre improving uh, basically productivity across the board. That what's the personal experience and how AI is going to make my life a bit easier and better. It's insane. I mean, when we deal with a lot of, the, you know, a lot of this legacy and migration of old code and languages, the results are just breathtaking. Um, really exciting. So look, um, uh, Jose, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. We can sit here and talk to you all afternoon about this stuff. It's like, it's, it's big gear. It's been awesome. Yeah. We can switch to sports next. Really fun. <laughs> really fun. We'll do that over drinks later. There you go. Uh, but look, we, asked, we end every episode of the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. And that could be, uh, I've got a great restaurant booked at the weekend, or it could be something in your professional life that you're excited about. So, Jose, what are you excited about doing next? What am I excited about doing next? I'm always excited to go home. I've got two really young girls. Right, yeah. yeah um, right. That are five and a half, uh, or almost six and, and one and a half. So that is always the, 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 the highlight. Um, we're going away for the weekend, which nice. is going to be nice. Where are you heading to? Um, we're going to San Augustine in Florida. So we're oh, going to check that out. We're going to go and visit some, some friends that ditched us in, in uh, Chicago for, for balmier weather in, uh, in Florida. In, in Florida. Nice. So that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. And then... It's just uh, coming out of the very hot period in Florida as well, isn't it? So it actually, I don't know. In Chicago, I think Florida is always a really hot period. So um, <laughs> yeah, was, I, I, I don't know if that's the, the right, the, the, it's the wrong juxtaposition for me. <laughs> yeah. um, and then on the professional side, just it's been so much fun. You know, it's it's just crazy the conversations and the people that you know. I went to I went to do sort of an educational session with. Um, the leadership team of the CFO of one of the largest retailers in the country. Mm. I would never have gone to present to that team no. and had it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, just have a yeah. conversation about the art of the possible and what they could be doing and got, getting them excited. So I've got a lot of that in my, um, in my future. Awesome. And that's super exciting. It's just fun. I mean, it's monumental when you think about what's going to happen in the next 10 years it's it's almost Mate, unthinkable it's monumental it? what's going to happen in the next 10 months oh uh, yeah you're right like we did our you're business right. plans for the year in october of last year and this stuff the wasn't on there change <laughs> it's okay. changed. Ding, ding, six months yeah. Move on. yeah so yeah. i love that when people ask me what's what does the next five years in retail look like I'm like i don't know that i'm the right person to be asking that question to <laughs> Good. So uh, just a quick shout out for Shalkit. If you are missing her outro, unfortunately, she couldn't join us here at Google Next. So unfortunately, you're stuck with me for these live episodes. Uh, but we will hopefully get a full update from Shalkit uh, about her house move and things like that on the kickoff yeah, season three yeah. in a couple of weeks time. Not the experience you would seek if you had to. No. Yes, absolutely. But anyway, um, a huge thanks to our guest Jose live at Google Next. Thank you so much for being on the show. To our sound and editing wizard, Ben, our producer, Marcel, and of course, to all our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and X, Dave Chapman, Shauke Zahl and Rob Kernahan. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. So see you back in Google's reality soon. Bye.